Well, hello everybody. Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. Yes, it's that time again. It's Takeover Tuesday, and I'm your host, Dermot Buffini. And as you know by now, once a month, I take over the show from my brother Brian, and I interview people who've been there and done that. People who've achieved superior performance in different areas of life. I want to know what makes the person as much as what makes the success. And today, I'm bringing you the very special story of a man who may just be the most interesting man, not only in the real estate industry, but in the world. And if ever a man gave the Dasecki guy a run for his money, it would be my guest today, Rick DeLuca. And if you're not familiar with Rick, he currently serves as the regional director of Harcourt's Pacific Northwest. And although Rick has seen the pinnacle of success in his real estate career, he's also lived a life and a story that reaches far past the bounds of the industry. Let me just preface this interview by saying that his story involves Charlie Sheen, an arms-dealing biker gang, and the undercover cop career of one of my closest personal friends. But enough of me giving it all away. Let's hear it from the man himself. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by my friend and our guest, Mr. Rick DeLuca, a legend in the real estate business. Uh, Rick has been a great friend to Buffini and Company for many years. He's spoken on our behalf across the country and done thousands of his own seminars all across North America. And not only that, but Rick has been a great mentor to me, and I've learned a lot from this great man. He's one of the most interesting men I've ever met in real estate. In fact, I call him the DeSecchi's man. Rick has an incredible story from his time as an athlete, his service in the military and police force, his career as a speaker, his charity that helps homeless kids, and he even has had a movie made about his life. And I'm so excited to chat with him today. So, Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dermot. Great to be here. Great to be back. It's great to see you. Yeah. Well, I literally could talk to you for three months. We had lunch before the show today, and and I heard another story that I'd never heard before. (laughs) You really have done a great service to the real estate industry over 25 years now, speaking and doing seminars. God only knows how many seminars you've done and many people who've helped. And I definitely want to talk about that and a little bit about what's changed and what's different and people listening here, kind of what are some of the principles that just never change. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd like to start from the start and mm-hmm. kind of go back to young Rick. And so where did you grow up and what was the early life like for you? Yeah, I was uh, actually born and raised about uh, 80 miles from here, just up north in Los Angeles in a city called Downey, Downey, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I was born and raised and went to Downey High School and Led my football team to an 0 9 season. And <laughs> nice. What position did you play? Uh, wide receiver. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Speed merchant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's where it all began right there. And so, what did mom and dad do? You know, mom was a housewife, mm-hmm. you know, for my sister and myself, my younger sister. And uh, dad, born and raised in Chicago, left home when he was 13, uh, moved to uh, LA from Chicago with his mom. And then he uh, decided to sell cars when he was 18 years old. and that's all he ever did the rest of his life, but he did a pretty good job. Hmm. You know, he owned quite a few uh, Chrysler and Toyota dealerships in hmm. Southern California, so that's the business I was raised in. I didn't know that. Yeah. What sort of values and what did they teach you growing up? What did they instill in young Rick DeLuca? You know, my dad, of course, had vision someday it would be DeLuca and son, and <laughs> so uh, so I remember between my junior and senior year, I was 16, and he said, I want you to learn the business from the ground up, and case you take over the business someday and so that summer i went to work for him and that monday morning and he introduced me to freddie uh, the lowest position in a car lot's called the lot boy mm. and he said rick this is freddie he's a lot boy he's your boss he said you're going to learn it from the ground up and so i did i washed cars and delivered parts and you know picked up garbage and and uh, here's a guy you know i've been raised by but never really had seen him in action and he worked seven days a week mm-hmm. you know 12 13 hours a day and and after about a month, 
I remember my dad took me to lunch. Didn't have many lunches with dad. Mm. Count them on both hands my whole life. And and uh, took me to lunch and sitting across from this guy that I knew pretty well or I thought I did. And, you know, and I said, I had no idea. I had no idea you were so successful. I had no <laughs> idea you you worked so hard. Mm. I said, yeah, again, you're just a machine when it comes to selling cars. And, you know, I've shared with audiences across the world. Uh, you know, I told my dad that... Uh, I said, how do you possibly sell more than, you sell two or three cars for every one your salesmen sell. I mean, how how can you do that? Hmm. And I remember he just looked at me like I was the dumbest kid on the block. And he said, well, I only show them cars they like. (laughs) And I said, yeah, but dad, how do you know what they like? He said, I ask them. I feel like, oh, i got to write that down. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny you should say that, because one of the sayings that you've always said is don't try and... Uh, be, don't try to be the answer to their prayers until you know what they're praying for. That's right. And that's what my dad taught me at 16 years of age. Huh. You know, so greatest salesman ever knew in my lifetime. And what drove him? You know, I think he was that generation that, uh, born in 1924, that, uh, like your parents, just work and work mm-hmm. ethic, mm-hmm. you know, and he was on his own. Mm-hmm. His dad died when he was two years old, so he was the oldest of three children, and he pretty much uh, supported the family from the time he was about 14. Mm. And that, that's what drove him. How did that leave an impression on you? Because you're a driven guy. and you've Yeah, I, you know, I think the work ethic probably comes from my dad. I also learned that working seven days a week, 13, 14 hours a day, maybe isn't the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Played a lot of sports from the time I was eight years old. And you know, I was a traditional baseball, basketball, football guy and played all of them through high school. And my dad saw one game. Mm. You know, so so that made an impression on me also. Mm-hmm. So when we had you know our kids and I went to the games that yep. went on the calendar. So mm-hmm. he taught me that too, maybe inadvertently, but he mm-hmm. taught me that that the work ethic clearly came from my father. So which was your best sport? Uh, baseball. So you did pretty well, didn't you? I know you're a modest guy and you don't yeah. like to share a yeah. lot, but that's my job is to get it out of you. Yeah. How far did you get? Yeah, I got drafted, you know, by the Dodgers as a catcher. I was 17 years old and. And I thought I was pretty good. And then I went to Bakersfield, California, single A ball, and discovered everybody's pretty good. <laughs> oh, this might not be a future after all. And sitting in the dugout next to uh, Steve Garvey, that's when I realized, and, you know, there's some aspects of life. There's men amongst boys, and I was one of the boys. I was not the man. Wow. That didn't last very long at all. I don't remember who the coach was at the time, but didn't you have mm-hmm. some sort of funny story with the coach? Was it no, Tommy Lasorda? Yeah, Tommy Lasorda. Yeah, I was very blessed that he was a coach. And in the few weeks I played ball. But, uh, yeah, I was I was a catcher, which, uh, you know, the quickest way to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, as a catcher since I was eight years old. and. My crowning glory is one night I came to bat uh, three times with the bases loaded and struck out all three times. <laughs> so the next day, you know, when the coach says, uh, Tommy wants to see you, that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> you know, so I was ready to pack my bag, and Tommy said, you had a tough night last night. And I said, yeah, really tough. And he goes, well, come on, get your bag, and let's go. And so, you know, I dressed out, got my ball bag, and went out to the diamond. And no one out there, just Tommy and me, is like four hours before the game, and uh, he said, come over here. I want you to sit on home plate. And, and so I felt like a little child, you know. He unzipped my ball bag, and he took out a baseball, and he, he just tossed it to me. And I'm sitting there picture me sitting on home plate, and he tossed me the ball. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, what is that? And I said, well, it's a baseball. And he goes, that's right. And then he reached in the bag, and he pulled out my, one of my bats. And he goes, what's that? And I said, well, it's a bat. And he goes, yeah. He said, the object that two are supposed to meet. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so like, what are you going to say? I mean, Thank no, you, sir. I had 
no response whatsoever. And he says, so let's let's work on that. And so he said, stand up and get in the box, take your stance. And, you know, and it, I don't know, it probably three, four minutes, five minutes, something like that. You, you know, where do you put your hands? Where do you line up your knuckles? Where does your right foot go? What angles your left foot? You know, what do you do with your right elbow? And, and even though I, I was not hitting the ball very well at all, I had been a pretty good ball player, and, and I finally, I couldn't even take it. And, and I said, you know, Tommy, I said, uh, you know, I learned this stuff when I was eight. And he just looked at me and said, well, then why did you forget it? Mm. And so what I had discovered at a fairly early age was that you can be pretty good at something, sometimes not even uh, of your own efforts as much as you've been blessed with certain abilities, mm-hmm. get you to a certain level. And uh, if you're not careful, you can slip into some habits <laughs> that deviate from what you learned you know, sometime earlier, and there's a price to be paid for that. So mm-hmm. that was the, pretty much the extent of my ball-playing days. So I played for a few weeks, and you know, but I was going to turn 18, and Vietnam was going on, 1966, and... I wasn't a good student, you know. I barely made it out of school. I mean, I got I got B's and C's. You know, B. I got pretty excited when I got a B. You know, <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> had my share of, uh, of D's, and uh, and so I had no desire to go to college. I mean, I had a couple of scholarships. You know, at University of Kansas play football, and then in California play baseball, and but I couldn't take them because my mm. grades were so poor. Mm. Just didn't interest you. Yeah, I was pretty immature. I was pretty. I was a pretty young seventeen-year-old. Mm. You know, and been blessed to you know have a pretty nice lifestyle kind of upper middle class you know pretty nice home and because dad worked all the time but took care of our family very well and Mm -hmm. and so i just you know i said what am i going to do and i i thought well you know i I had a grandfather that was uh never talked about the war in world war ii but he was a real hero you know Mm -hmm. big scars through his face and stuff and after he passed away i got his medals and i read the citations and wow what a, what a man he was yeah. and and so he was kind of inspiration so that's why i decided you know let's join the military and go hmm. do something so what year was that 1966 i joined a week before my 18th birthday wow yeah one week out of high school hmm. uh, joined the navy yeah i figured well that's probably the safest thing to join in, the, in during the vietnam era yeah and so how long were you in the navy for three years the first couple i think it was maybe three months or so i played baseball for the 11th naval district in san diego hmm. And kind of went around a role playing ball, and I said, "Well, that's pretty cool." And then the baseball season ended, and and they said, "Okay, now it's time to go to war." And I said, "Well, I play football too. <laughs> <laughs> what else have you got for me? <laughs> so yeah, I, more sports." So I did. So I played football for the Eleventh Naval District, and uh, but I only played for like maybe four, five, six weeks. Mm-hmm. I was a third string quarterback, and the first two went down, and I was in Hawaii playing the Marine Corps, and so I went in the quarterback, and I. Yeah, it was the second series of plays. I all I remember is I woke up in a naval hospital in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so, wow! Yeah, and at that time, you know, during the Vietnam conflict, there's so many young guys in the military. I mean, a lot of the military teams could beat a lot of college teams. That's how much talent was in wow. the military. My point is, they didn't sit around and wait for you to heal. <laughs> right. Said you're gone. Next up, you're right. You we, have, we can replace you. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think inspiration from my grandfather. I said, well, you're in it, you know, and I had fun for a few months playing ball, but, you know, that's not why I joined the military, you know. And some people relate to it, some people don't, but I was, you know, I was pretty uh, pretty loyal to the country and felt that was what we're supposed to do, you know. In hindsight, the Vietnam War probably wasn't a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, when you're in the midst of it, you know, I said, this is what you're supposed to do, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for our country. And so if you're going to be in it, then do something worthwhile. So I decided to take the next step and do something, so... So what did you learn in the Navy, and what did you do? Well, I was a SEAL Team 1, 
mm-hmm. uh, stationed in San Diego and uh, did a couple tours in Vietnam. And I learned some good things and not so good things. The good things learned was the importance of self-discipline, mm-hmm. the importance of inner strength can get you through pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. But I also learned some things about you know maybe how to compartmentalize, which yeah. which to a point is good. Yeah. But I'm not sure, given the, you know, after the service and things I did afterwards, I'm not sure if maybe that compartmentalization went a bit too far. Gotcha. You know, a, a clear separation between the personal emotional feelings and, mm. and, and what you're trained to do and how to do it and mm-hmm. good and bad for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the part of the military I didn't like, uh, you know, I was in there for three years and I, I counted the days till I got out, quite mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. was I wasn't comfortable being in a structure that someone could literally dictate every facet of your life mm-hmm. almost purely because they've been doing it longer than you had. Had a little to do with their competence, mm-hmm. you know, their intelligence level, but they're your superior and what they said goes and you just you can't question it. Mm-hmm. And that never set well with me. But you still have to do it. And you have to have the discipline to do that. Because yeah. I know okay. you're kind of a you're a free spirited guy. You're a disciplined guy. You like to get out and get after it. But obviously as a young book that must have been pretty challenging and, and at the same time is to get through SEAL training you do have to compartmentalize yeah absolutely I mean I remember the night I almost quit there was only once I almost quit and it was had nothing to do with the physical part of it it was all mental and mm. you know we finished our workout you know about six in the evening and we had our PT gear our physical training gear on and shorts and boots and stuff and so they said you know, we're in formation you're out on the beach there in Coronado and said you didn't shower, get in your fatigues, and you got uh, four minutes to be back in formation. So, you know, we're scrambling. There's about probably 70 of us at that point. Mm-hmm. And we're scrambling over each other and elbowing each other, trying to take showers and get our gear back on and get out and get in formation. And so we finally get out there, and, you know, I'm sure they never even looked at their watch, but they said, oh, you didn't make it. So back inside, put your PT gear on again, back in formation. So we get back PT gear, back on the beach. And, you know, ran another couple, two, three miles and did a bunch of other rockers and stuff, you know, and stuff that they do and for another about 45 minutes. And then, okay, now back in, shower, get your fatigues on, back in formation. Oh, didn't make it again. And it went on and on and on. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, four or five, six times into it. Oh, you made it. Whoa, you made it. And then they hold inspection. And one of the first guys they see, his, his gig line's not lined up, or his collar's turned up, or, I mean, just some little minor infraction. And they said, well, well so-and-so, you know, is uh, not towing a line here, so everybody back in your PT gear, back in, you know, ran another couple of miles. And and so it's what they call switchy-changy. And we, we did that uh, that night 17 times. Wow. And, uh, yeah, from about 6 o'clock to about 3 in the morning. How many miles total would your friend do? You know, I don't honestly remember. It, it wasn't just running. It was, you know, stuff you do in the surf and, you yeah. know, but, you know, probably no more than 10, 12 miles, something like that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, you're ready to call quits. But my, my point is that I, maybe two-thirds of the way through that, everybody's on edge. I mean, your nerves are pretty raw. And, you know, it's it's hard not to get mad at some guy who... You know, yeah. had, didn't have his gig line lined up with his, you know, and that's the reason we're back in here again, and guys are pushing and shoving, and, I mean, your clothes are just wringing wet. You're just, you know... You can't quit. Or, I mean, you can you quit. You can't. They're yeah, trying and, to get and, you to quit. That's right. And I and guys are leaving left and right, ringing the bell, saying, that's it. I didn't sign up for this stuff. I didn't come close, but I thought about it. To this day, I can remember, in the locker room, it just hit me what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And went, wow, this is what they're doing. They're just trying to break me. Mm-hmm. And actually, they're trying to get me to break myself. Mm-hmm. And I started chuckling. 
and I remember a couple of guys around me looked at me like, you know, I, I'd lost it or something. And, and I said, man, this is what they're trying to do. They're just trying to, you know, get us to break ourselves. And however long it lasted after that, another, I don't know, two, three hours, some, somewhere in there, didn't even phase me. Didn't even phase me. So that was like a critical point of learning for myself right there that you can compartmentalize. You can separate yourself from the situation you're in, which has, you know, been helpful for the yeah, rest of my life. Sure. To so a point. To a point. Yeah, I get that. How come you didn't quit? I think there's two reasons. The biggest one, I wouldn't be quitting them. I'd be quitting myself. Mm. I never really had, I don't want to sound like, oh, Mr. Big Shot here. I never really had a lot of challenges in, to that point in my life. I was raised in a pretty nice you know, environment and went to a good school and had a lot of really good friends. So I didn't have many challenges, quite honestly. Mm. And so maybe that was one of the first early challenges I had in my life that, you know, wow, it comes right down to it. You're the one who's making a decision. Are you going to quit or are you not going to quit? And so a big part of it, I think the biggest part was that I'm not going to do that to myself because I'm not sure how I would live myself mm. if I had done that, if I'd reached that low point. But the other part, and because they do, you know, I think all military, a lot, a lot of positions, probably different professions maybe do it to varying degrees, but also you're quitting your team. Mm. And if you quit mm-hmm. your team, then the whole team's weak and, you know, the four legs of the stool is now three. Mm. And so they instilled that very early on. And so I think those are the two factors that, no, I'm not going to quit. So it sounds like you really embraced the adversity and used it as a challenge. I didn't like it. Yeah. But I discovered you don't have to like something in life to recognize the value of it. Mm. Great lesson as a young man. Yeah, I was very fortunate to learn that at you know 18 years of age. DeLuca and Sons at this stage is not happening or are you kind of doing your own thing and you're I'm finding my way or is that still kind of an option you know I don't even know how much of an option was I never give much thought because when at least for me when I was in the military your total focus is on what you're doing it didn't really think too much about the future you know in, in, in my era it was pretty common that uh, you know in the mid 60s you join the military and you get married you marry your high school sweetheart, and so somebody could get the $7,500 life insurance policy, you know. And so uh, I, I did that. I married my high school sweetheart, and, you know, and, and it was only the last maybe three, four months that I began to realize that I didn't want to stay in this and that I better come up with what am I going to do to make a living to support, you know, a family. Mm-hmm. And it was just the two of us. I had no kids at that point. But, you know, what am I going to do here? And so I, th- I think that was part of it, too, just thinking about the future and what I was going to do. And so my wife at that time, she had an uncle who was a policeman in uh, Los Angeles. Mm. And so I was watching a TV show back then called Adam 12. It was about LAPD. And and I said, well, that's pretty cool. And well, your uncle's an LAPD. And so, so I went on a ride along. Uh, with him, he actually didn't work for LA Police Department. He worked for LA County Sheriff's Office. So I went with him one night and rode along with him. And I said, "Oh man, this is it. This is what I want to do right here." And so about three months before I got out of the military, that's when I started thinking, "Okay, that's what I want to do." So how did you go about doing that? What was the next step? What did you do? Well, my dad's best friend was the chief of police of uh, city in LA, Gardena. And so Chief Tracy told me, he said, "Here's what I suggest you do. I was going to move back home to LA." Uh, the two of us and go to work for LA County Sheriff's Office he said but you know you're really young you're not even I wasn't even 21 years old yet at that point he said go through the practice of taking the written exam the oral exam the physical exam down in San Diego where I live so then when you come to LA you will have done it once you'll feel much more comfortable probably test higher and so I did that uh, based on his suggestion and I ended up uh, number one on the higher list for San Diego Police Department Mm -hmm. within a few weeks I was out of the military and I tested in LA 
and was on their hire list as well. And they were hiring lots of policemen back then. And and so I had to make a decision on whether to stay in San Diego, which I loved, you know, or go back home to Los Angeles. And the reason I went back was pretty simple. I think uh, we're talking 1969. As I recall, the starting salary in San Diego was about $450 a month, and Los Angeles was $711 a month. And so I went home to make more money. Well, there was obviously a reason for that, too. They were getting paid more money because it was probably a little riskier than San Diego dudes. a little bit. So, yeah, so I ended up going back home and going to work for L.A. County Sheriff's Office. And I think people listening to this will see there's a progression in your life that you don't just play baseball, you end up... (laughs) <laughs> being with the Dodgers, you don't just join the military, but you end up in the SEALs. You don't just end up joining the police department. Talk about your career in the police department and then where it progressed to. Yeah, I really didn't do much in L.A. I was a cop in L.A. for two years. The first several months I worked in the L.A. County Men's Central Jail, and and I learned a lot there um, because some of the inmates at that time that I uh, worked with was uh, Charlie Manson. And, you know, I had to escort Manson around. I had to read his outgoing and incoming letters. And, you know, I had the people came and visited him, Squeaky Fromm, who was convicted of trying to assassinate President Gerald Ford. And so I met a lot of these people. And, you know, and for a young guy who had been raised, you know, in a fairly nice, you know, neighborhood. And all of a sudden I'm kind of thrown into a world that I I couldn't relate to whatsoever. No. And then uh, some other people I won't mention, but that's the most notorious probably. And they bounced around in the jail. And then for a couple of months, I worked in the inmate reception center, which is when the bus comes in and all the bad guys get off the bus. They come in and, you know, your job is to take the cuffs off and, you know, search them all. And you get in three, four or five fights a night because the rule is if they're abreast with their buddies, well, you got to fight. That's just part of the rule. And you know that going in. So you just, you know, that's where the training had come in from the military, too. But, But, you know, so I did that. And. And then I hit the streets in L.A., and uh, and I didn't really like it. You know, I, I didn't like a lot of what I saw. Like a cop on the beat. Yeah, yeah. I was in a black and white driving around. And, and how old are you here at this uh, time? I was 20, 21, 22, and 23. I went to work for um, LASO, a sheriff's office, um, three months after I turned 21. Huh. And so about a year and a half into it, I just there, there were parts of Los Angeles that, that are pretty tough, just like, the, you know, today, tougher today than when I was doing it. And it's almost institutionalized that a lot of people there don't like the police and a lot of police don't like the people. Yeah. And I was going to college at night and I majored in sociology because <laughs> I was going to change the world. Right. You know? cool. And it was, uh, it was quite an eye opener when I found out that uh, there's a whole bunch of people don't want to be changed. Right. You know, yeah. and then I saw some things, not a lot, but I saw some things on the police side of things too, that I wasn't happy with, you know, the way they treated people and, and I said, man, this is kind of a lose-lose situation here. And Well, and sadly, at that point, my high school sweetheart, we had a little girl in 1970. And then a year later, you know, we had just grown apart. And so I got divorced. And I said, if if I'm going to start over, I want to start over somewhere differently. And so I had a friend in Reno, went to Reno. And I just loved the idea of a smaller town, about 80,000 people back then. So I moved to Reno. No job, no place to live or anything. And uh, mm-hmm. So you're yeah. what age at this year? 23. So you lived a lot of life. Usual experiences from considering being a professional athlete to serving the military to being a cop. Now, when did you become a detective? Well, when I went to Reno, that was in 1971. Mm -hmm. So I was 23 years old, and Reno PD said, wow, look what we got here. We got this kid's 23, he's new to Reno, nobody knows him, prior law enforcement, you know, in L.A., and He's single. He can work seven days a week, won't bother anybody. And, and so I went to the police academy in Reno, and, and then they 
I was standing here in the last couple of weeks of the academy, and this guy came up to me from, uh, I knew he worked in the narcotics division, and he came up to me, he looked at me, and all he said was this, don't cut your hair, and Toronto walked away. <laughs> we knew they were there looking for someone to put in undercover narcotics work. And so, so that's when they tabbed me to do that. So when I left the academy, I never went to the streets in Reno right away. I went from the academy right into undercover work uh, in narcotics division. So, and I did that for a year and a half. It's a pretty interesting story. <laughs> yeah. And it's so much of an interesting story that there was actually a movie made about it. About five months into that assignment, bought some heroin one night when a really, really bad guy. He was going to prison for the rest of his life as a habitual criminal three felony convictions and the district attorney's office saw an opportunity there and told the guy we won't prosecute you on these recent charges if you agree to take Rick with you and introduce him to all your little friends so basically your long-haired kid mm -hmm. who now is going to be an undercover cop mm -hmm. and this guy's going to avoid jail if he introduces you to the gang yep takes me with him and uh, so I went with him that night and uh, he was a member of an outlaw motorcycle gang and so uh, the city of Reno, to this day, I have no idea where they found it, but they leased the chopper, 47 knucklehead with a suicide clutch and a jockey shift, and I'd never ridden a bike in my life. And so uh, I went up to the University of Nevada Reno football stadium parking lot that night, and they called a motorcycle cop over, Tom Clark, and Tom had no idea who it was. He just saw this long-haired-looking weird guy, and that was me. And, and they said, Tom, teach this guy how to ride a motorcycle. And so I had about an hour lesson trying to learn how to ride this motorcycle. And, and then the two of us, off we went 30 miles south of Reno to Carson City where the gang was based and stayed with them for 13 months. I lived with them, traveled with them, partied with them, committed crimes with them, and did that for a long time. Which is a high level of compartmentalization. Yeah, totally. And so this is not just your ordinary gang. They're smuggling drugs and arms. I yeah, mean, they're bad guys. Business. Yeah, they're bad guys, yeah. We, at the end of the assignment, we indicted 104 people in five different states and everything from trafficking and heroin extortion kidnapping armed robbery homicide um, and 101 of them were convicted so you're a cop but mm -hmm. now you got to be accepted by criminals yeah what was that like i mean how would you describe the journey of going from a cop to being a part of a biker gang I mean, I look back on it, and I'm kind of puzzled myself, quite frankly, you know, I did it. But I was only 23 years old, and when you're 23, you're invincible, you know. And so I was scared to death, first of all. I mean, I was scared for a year because I lived with them. 17 of us all lived in the same house. I had to get a job because you had to have some sorts of income because not everybody got all the fruits of the crimes, you know, that were committed. And so you had to have some sorts of income. So I had to get a job. I was a garbage man on a trash truck. I washed dishes at a casino, and which always annoyed me. I had to take my paychecks and turn them over to the city of Reno because I was being paid by the city of Reno, and so I couldn't have a double compensation. Bureaucracy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, lunch. right. But, you know, so, I mean, they're pretty skeptical. You know, right away. But I think uh, because of the training I've been through, the the culture of you know, at least the in that subculture in, in the world is is filled with violence. The more violence you are, the more respect you command, and the higher you rise in, in the hierarchy. And I guess because of my fear, because I had some pretty good training, and you know, and been in combat mm -hmm. and stuff, I I didn't like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I let that show, and I was somewhat violent and uh, so I rose fairly quickly and, and commanded a lot of respect from them every biker has a name and my name was the weird one <laughs> the reason they called me the weird one is one I probably didn't say a hundred words a day because I was afraid the more I talked the more likely I'd say something mm -hmm. that would you know cost my life 
And so I didn't talk to them, which is pretty odd. I didn't share the drugs. And my own cover story is I dropped so much LSD, so much acid, that I had not much brain left. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't talk. And so I had gelatin caps. That was my LSD. That was my acid. And then I didn't share their women. So for those three reasons, primarily, that's why they called me the weird one. So I played that role for yeah for 13 months. How many people in the police department knew you were doing this? Was this a very close uh, um, group of people? It would or? have been the head of detectives, Jimmy, the captain, the chief of police, and then my partner, Joe Barham. So there, I guess there are three or four. It's a very vulnerable place to be, obviously. And mm -hmm. did you feel like they had your back? Did you feel no. completely unsafe? No, because keep in mind, we're talking the early 70s. We didn't have electronic surveillance stuff that was worth a darn. You know, we didn't. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be wired up. I mean, that, yeah. that wasn't practical. We didn't have cell phones. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we, we didn't have any of that. And so twice a week, I would go to a payphone and I'd call a, a specific phone number that went to a. a tape recorder and I would file verbal reports mm -hmm. about every three days on what I had seen for the three previous days. Crimes I had seen committed, uh, you know, the drug trafficking and stuff going on. And so I participated in some of those crimes as long as there was no violence involved because even though I was deep undercover, there was a point that I couldn't just turn my eye if someone were going to get hurt. If yeah. some life was in jeopardy or someone seriously hurt, I... You're going to be a cop. Yeah. So, unfortunately, that only happened a couple of times in 13 months. And I was so weird, they thought I just kind of freaked out, you know, so... <laughs> wow, that's kind of mind-blowing that you could even do that for 13 months. Yeah, I lost like 17 pounds. Physically, I was a wreck, you know, because I really hadn't slept much in, in over a year. But as bad a shape as it was, physically, I was in worse shape psychologically. I was a mess. Because during that assignment, well into that assignment, my sister was four years younger than me. Yeah. I was 23, Debbie was 19, and she came up to visit me. We weren't real close. She was 13 years old when I left home, and, and it was just kind of an odd visit. I couldn't really visit with her much because I was deep undercover. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so she flew back home and, and a week later took her own life. And so I had to kind of go through that and accept that my little sister came up to see me to save her and I didn't save her. And so that took quite a toll. And so I, I became even more violent you know, to the guys there. Yeah, yeah. I, I hated them. I think you might have told me one time that they actually suspected that you were an undercover cop. Well, they found out who I was. That's how the assignment ended. For three months, I kept going to the detective in charge. Jimmy and I told him, I, I got to get out. I got to get out. And he'd say, okay, I'll talk to the chief. And then, you know, he'd come back. I'd get on the phone with him, you know, it's prescribed date and time. I'd meet him or a phone. He'd say, well, chief says, we almost have enough. We just need a little more, just a little more. And that went on for about three months. Yeah. And then um, in the middle of the afternoon, I came home one day to the house where we all lived and walked in the door. And we have a screen door with a latch on in the summertime. And I walked in, you know, through the latch. And uh, Whitey, who was the head of our gang, was sitting on the couch. And he had a 45 automatic. He always had one. It was under a pillow on his lap, and he took it up, and he pointed at me, and he cocked it, and he said, you know, you're a, you know, I won't use the language, but mm -hmm. he said, you know, you're a flippin' narc. Mm -hmm. And I'm well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he said, Worm said that, you know, you're you're an undercover guy. And, and so I had been there so long, I reacted just like they would react. I reacted with violence. And I said, you get Worm out here, and I'll kill that son of a gun. You know, you get my, I want to confront him. And so, fortunately for me, Whitey didn't, know for a fact what was going on so he got up to go in the back room to get worm and I didn't know what he was going to come back out with and so I just turned around I didn't even open the screen I went through the screen door 
and jumped on my bike and head back to you know to Reno. And what had happened is that a, a young girl who worked in our police identification bureau was was kind of sympathetic to that culture, if you will, and so she released my photograph and my bio from the ID bureau to underground newspapers in Berkeley, California. So they published that and they're you know, and here's an undercover cop in Reno and so that's how they found out who I was. So that's how the assignment ended. So at the end of that thing, you know, like I said we invited over a hundred people and that was all fine and good and I went in the back in the uniform and or, you know, to hit the streets and testified for over a year at trials, you know, for these guys and but I, I was a mess. And the city of Reno felt so responsible they they sent me down to Mazalan, Mexico for a month and and they sent a team of psychologists down that would alternate and just for therapy every other day for a month and then they paid for my therapy for four years so it must have been just such a dark time i mean you you're trying to grieve your the loss of your sister Mm -hmm. what came with that the trauma of having to live a double life basically and a life that sounds like was more dominant than the life as a cop yeah what was that process like and how long did you know you said four years but like what did you learn from all that how did that help you how did that serve you I think as I look back on it, I didn't like myself. I didn't like myself because I, when, when Debbie died, I, when I went back to L.A. to see my mom and dad, they knew I was in narcotics division. They didn't know a lot. But when I showed up, you know, for Debbie's service, uh, you can have a biker takes a shower, but you're still a biker. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was afraid to talk around them mm. because the language you know that I would use even though I didn't speak much during the day probably every fifth word was a foul word mm-hmm. and what told me I was too deep was that I wanted to leave my own family and get back to where I was because I was more comfortable with them than I was my own family almost like the guy in Shawshank Redemption when he leaves yeah. after a life sentence he just can't handle being yeah. outside the prison yeah and so because of that I had a lot of hatred for them but I also was bordering on some hatred of myself you know that what have you become you know that you couldn't even meet with your family and so I was very blessed I had a great psychologist Jerry May who kind of worked with me for years you know through that and 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 asked the same similar question you know what did you learn and the things I learned is that you can't go through something like that and not grow I mean you just can't it's not possible but Mm -hmm. the growth can be negative or positive and and I had some negative aspects of that growth you know a year after my sister took her own life my mother took her own life and and so uh, I was not a very nice guy for a long time. I had a lot of negative feelings inside me, you know, that I blamed a lot of people, you know. And if you had a sister, you wouldn't want me to have been dating her, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But it did tell me that you can compartmentalize, but you got to be careful when you, you close that door for the compartmentalization that you don't put a lock in it and turn the key and throw it away, too. Yeah. Because you can live in that compartment. Mm-hmm. And so I think I had gone from one extreme as this pretty nice young kid, blessed, and to almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult to get out of that box. It took me years. And what year was that? Well, I finished the assignment in 1972, 73, I guess, something like that. After you recovered, you ended up getting into real estate. Because of what I'd done, there was a lot of recognition, you know, and they... They made a, a movie, you know, based on that years later called Beyond the Law. It's a horrible movie. <laughs> well, Charlie Sheen played Charlie it. Sheen played me. Oh, and, yeah. And so I'm curious about that because there's a story out there. He is playing Rick DeLuca. Yeah. But that was in 1993 because mm-hmm. you were on set. Hardly at all. No, it, it actually, I don't want to take a long time with that, but 
I got into real estate. This all ties together. I got into, my best friend, Dwayne Eisenberg, another cop. Dwayne and I wanted to buy some real estate, so we were going to buy a duplex, and Bill Myers had been recommending this to us, uh, referral. And so <laughs> it works. Yeah. So we, we uh, go to Bill Myers, Myers Realty, and and we bought this duplex, and, and, and Bill kept telling me throughout the entire transaction, so, oh, God, you'd be great in real estate. you got to get in real estate. Now, years later, I found out Bill told everybody you'd be great in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was talking to me. Um, and so I got a real estate license, and but I, I was enjoying being a cop because when I finished undercover, I worked the streets right a year and a half, and then they tabbed me to run the um, in the administration division, ran the police academy for another year. And hired a new policeman and trained him, and and then uh, made detective when I was 27 years old, and and I was a detective for the last year mm-hmm. or so as a cop, and and that's when I met Bill Myers. Well, the reason I bring that up is that when I met him, he looked familiar to me. He just seemed kind of familiar, but we couldn't place it. He had come to Reno from Vegas, where he'd been a real estate down there. Well, it wasn't until years later that I discovered that when I was a kid in high school, Bill's about 10 years older than me that Bill had a talk show on KTLA, Channel 5 in Los Angeles, you know, and I obviously had just seen him, I guess, in passing, and so he had that entertainment background. So Bill's the one who kind of knew the story, because in Reno was, you know, kind yeah. of a big deal, and so he lined up to meet with some people to tell my story, and I, you know, I, I did it. I, I kind of went through the motions, and we, we actually flew to San Francisco in the red carpet room in United Airlines and met a guy who came in to hear the story. His name was Francis Ford Coppola, but he wasn't, you know, The Godfather hadn't really hit yet. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was filmed, but it was, it was still mm-hmm. in the can, and, and so as a result of that, they hired a couple of writers to what they call, they wrote a, a, a treatment, which is a short version of a screenplay, and then they, uh, they lined me up with a guy named Gilbert Ralston, who lived uh, in a little town outside of Reno and Genoa, and he was a much older gentleman. He'd been in the movie industry for years and years and years. He he created the uh, story, uh, the series Wild Wild West, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. Anyway, that kind of fame. And, and Mr. Ralston kind of took me under his wing, and they said, you meet with uh, Mr. Ralston once a week for a few months while we do the location work and, you know, all the kind of stuff we got to do, you know, for pre-production. And so I did, and he kind of took me under his wing, is almost like a grandfather. And what he told me, I vividly remember. He said, "I've been in Hollywood for over fifty years, and you need to hear something from me." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Don't believe anything they tell you, and believe half of what's in writing," mm-hmm. which really made a mark on me. Mm-hmm. And so I hired an attorney. Uh, one of the guys I played ball with, Frank Peterson, was his dad, so he's a big time attorney in Reno. So hired Mr. Peterson and. I had to get an agent, and then, you know, they. I had to register as a with a literary. I can't remember what it was now. I had to get a pseudo name, you know, and, and then they wanted me to do a screen test because they said if you could play that part for a year and a half, you could probably play yourself in a movie. And at that time, there had only been two people ever star in their own life story. One was after World War II, a guy named Audie Murphy, yeah. one yeah. Congressional Medal yeah. of Honor. And the other was a placement in the French Connection, which came out in the 60s. Huh. And they said, we think you could do that. So I screen tested, and I was going through the motions. You know, I was in real estate. I was like, excited about being in real estate, out of police work at this point. And, and then they said, we're going to send you to New York for acting lessons for six months while we do all the the prep work and and then what began to bother me was how much control they take your life they said okay now on this date you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna fly to LA and you're gonna go to a, a premiere and you're gonna be with uh, you know we're gonna tell you who you're gonna be with and walk on the red carpet and nobody know who you are but you're gonna be with somebody that, 
And I'm going, oh, okay. I'm, I'm so far over my head in this thing, you know. So I go down and stayed there, and the limo picked me up, and I went over to another hotel, and this blonde girl came out, and she got in the car. We didn't, didn't know each other, didn't ever hardly talk to each other. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Susan Anton, and uh, who was just as young, you know, nobody. And she made a few movies, but yeah. nothing really big. And, and and that really started to bother me because I could see that they're going to take over my life. But like the military again. Yeah, exactly to- right. Exactly. Right. You know, I have people telling me where to go, what time to be there, and what to do when I was there. And and I was off on you know on another course. And and so we went. We actually went to uh, Mr. Peterson's office. All the people there, all the big shots with the you know the half-inch thick contract to sign, and there's a check with my name on it, and and Mr. Peterson just kind of pointed out certain phrases in there, and one of them is standard clause in, in contracts with the studios is what they call creative control, which gives the studio basically the right to say anything they want in your life story. They have creative control. Right. And I said, well, geez, I'm not comfortable with this, you know, because of my sister doing yeah. that assignment. Yeah. I had a girlfriend who was just a, Carol, just a sweet, sweet girl, a special ed teacher, you know, and you can't have any kind of relationship given what I was doing. And mm-hmm. so that, that kind of ruined that. And I was worried about it might embarrass my family, mm-hmm. how it might embarrass, you know, Carol and her family and mm-hmm. friends of mine. And I, I said, well, I, I'm not going to sign this. And they said, well, if you don't sign it, you'll never hear from another studio again. And I said, well, that's the way it is. So they packed up their briefcases and they they left. Years later, they made the story. And so Mr. Peterson called me and said, hey, they're filming Beyond the Law and it's your story. So he reached out to them and I didn't really care, quite honestly. But they flew me to the set, you know, and and I was only there for like three, four days. And I, I couldn't stand when I was watching. Half of it was nothing close to the truth whatsoever. And they didn't care about my input. I was like, like a thorn in their side, so so I left. And hmm. so yeah, so that's how that ended. Yeah, but did that bring up any anything for you and reliving any of that, or were you in a good spot with it all? You know, I don't think I was in a good spot with it. But it, no, just being there on the set, I had so compartmentalized that out of my life. I was somebody different at that point. Yeah. And so, did you ever watch the movie? Yeah, I watched it once. My younger son, Brandon, here just about, I don't know, six, seven months ago, for some reason, he has a picture. of I only allowed one photograph of myself during that huh. assignment. It was like four weeks into the assignment. And so I was still fairly clean cut, but I'm sitting with my Nazi helmet and, my, you know, yeah. my, wearing my colors. And, and, and we blew it up to big poster size because we needed that in court during trials because the jury would look at me, this clean cut 25 year old kid sitting there, a uniformed policeman, trying to picture that you did what? You, right. you know what? And so we had to introduce that poster as evidence into the trial so they could make the connection. And Brandon ended up with that poster. It was in a <laughs> warehouse or something, and he's, he's got it to this day. A few months ago, he said, Hey, Dad, could we watch that movie together sometime? And you tell me which parts are true and which parts not true. So, uh, well, you've come out better than Charlie Sheen, so at least you can say that. <laughs> well, I guess so. <laughs> it's a fascinating story, and there's more still to talk about. Yes, um, it's unique. <laughs> so you're doing real estate. You're selling real estate. Yeah. You I like the freedom of it? I was pretty naive about that, too. You know, I, when I met Bill and he recruited me, I got my license. I, I went to school three times. <laughs> I quit twice because I was enjoying being a homicide detective and, you know, being a policeman. And, you know, I, I got my license, but I wasn't ready to leave, so I was a part-time agent. Mm-hmm. But I was working 62 hours a week as a detective, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And so so my first year's real estate was you know, pretty impressive. I made $1,100, <laughs> you know. But what I saw... 
Because, you know, I mean, the lines just crossed. You know, I mean, somebody was looking looking after me because I was getting tired of police work from the standpoint of what I said a while ago, and that is that you got people that control your life, not as much as the military, mm-hmm. but I would take the tests. I would be really high on the higher list, and then they'd put in longevity points, and I would drop down and... You know, so you couldn't get promoted as fast as I felt I should be promoted. Right. You know? Yeah, right. So I got frustrated with that. And then my last case was a 19-year-old blonde co-ed, uh, Martha, who got her throat slit and, at the University of Nevada, Reno, right off the campus. And that was my case. And it's not like the movies, mm-hmm. you know. I worked, 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 and we never solved it. It was actually just solved. That was in 1976. And it was just solved uh, last year. Wow. The serial murder who had gone through Reno all those years ago, Crazy. confessed to it. So those combination things just drove me out of place work in the real estate, and I hit the market at the right time. So you're how old? I would have been 28. 28. Yeah. Started doing pretty good? Well, yeah, because I hit the market in you know, the hottest market we'd ever seen in the history of the country. You know, The way I learned how to sell real estate is I answered the phone. I mean, every time the phone rang, there was money. Wow. And then so I sold 42 houses my first year. And, wow. You know, but I don't want to take all the credit doesn't go to being in the right place, right time. But a lot of it was. I mean, you know, I learned a lot from my dad as far as sales yep. go. And I had, you know, people skills. But clearly the market was just so hot. Right. You know, that's how I learned. So how long were you selling real estate for? Well, the hot market lasted about two and a half years. And maybe it's important that people are listening to this that they understand the first lesson I learned, mm-hmm. which is a really tough lesson to learn. And we've had a pretty good run right now in the last three you know, years in this country. My first lesson was this. The worst part about a hot market, it can create horrible work habits. Mm-hmm. And I got caught with that. So when the market turned upside down, October 79, interest rates started climbing up, got to 21%. I was broke within six months. I mean, I didn't know how to sell real estate. Wow. I had to learn it all over. You didn't have much of a cushion. You didn't have anything reserved. No, so I, had, were you- I sold everything. Sold my house. Sold my, I had to sell my Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, right. Probably shouldn't have the a priori- priority if you have the, to sell it, right? The priorities. You know, yeah. So, yeah. But you're young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 28, 29, 30 years old. How did you get through that period? When I saw my dad, went down and said, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm going to get out of the business. I'm just not making it. Nobody's buying houses is what I told him. He goes, no, there's still people buying houses. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's just really brutal. I'm almost broken. The reason I drove 500 miles from Reno to L.A. was to ask my dad, what should I do? And he says, I don't know anything about real estate. And I said, well, you're successful. There's got to be some parallels there. And <laughs> he said this. He goes, okay, okay. He says, give me an idea what you guys do to generate your leads. Car guy leads, all he cares about. And I said, well, we got signs all over town. People calling the signs. We've got ads running and publications. They've called our ads. We have what we call uh, open houses. You know, we go out there on a Saturday, Sunday, stick a sign in front, tie a balloon to it, turn on the ball game, and hope nobody erupts us for the <laughs> afternoon. And we got uh, for sub owners, uh, they think they know more than we do. We got expired listings. They hate us more than we hate them. <laughs> uh, bus stop benches, you know, shopping carts. Today we got you know, websites and blog and tweet. Anyway, go through this litany of things. My dad's just looking at me. I'll never forget this. I'm sitting at the kitchen table, the home I've been raised in, January 1980. And my dad said, That's what you guys do? I said, yeah. He says, well, you know what? No, I lost my dad about eight years ago. Here's a direct quote from the late Pete DeLuca. He goes, you know those ideas? I said, yeah. He goes, they're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I said, Dad, that's because you don't understand real estate. That's what we all do. He said, well, then you're all stupid. (laughs) So he's the one that said, I got two pieces of advice for you. He said, number one, the problem with most of those activities is that you don't have a target. Hmm. 
He says, you didn't leave home at 17, join the military. They didn't just give you a gun and say, start shooting. Mm-hmm. They taught you to aim at a target. More importantly, they taught you to aim at a bullseye. Yeah. So you need to know your target is not all of Reno. Your target are people that you know. We didn't <laughs> have terminology back then about called database. Right. He goes, you need to put together a list of everybody you know, and you need to consciously identify who your bullseye people are, your favorite people. Mm-hmm. That was his first piece of mm-hmm. advice. And then the second thing he said which really relaunched my career. He said, you've been in it long enough to have a good idea what most agents do. So you need to take a few days and write down on a piece of paper every single thing you do, every facet of this business. So you do some lead generation, you sit open houses, and you present offers, and you drive buyers around, and you you do listing presentations. I mean, this gigantic list. He goes, once you have a list of every single thing that you do, you need to look at each one of those activities and consciously become aware of what the average agent does in each one of those things. Mm-hmm. So if it's an open house, what does the average agent do? If you get a listing, what does the average agent do? Mm-hmm. He says, because once you know what the average agent does, it puts you in a position to make a decision whether you want to do more than the average agent. Mm-hmm. And it made it so simple for me. Because one of the things I understand, you know, you, you heard my background, I never went to college. Mm-hmm. I had no business experience. I was a failure as a part-time agent. And then I hit the market at the right time, and so I had horrible work habits. And so my point is this. I didn't have a, a high degree of self-confidence when it came to the business world. I had had a lot of self-confidence because of my, yeah. my training background. I didn't have much self-confidence when it came to real estate because the one thing all real estate people hear as soon as they come into the business is how much competition there is in the marketplace. Right. And there were 1,200 realtors in Reno at that time, about 100,000 people. And I'm like, man, there's so much competition. Well, when I went through that exercise that my dad suggested, what I realized, I hardly had any competition. Mm-hmm. Because most people in the performance of their job do the absolute minimum. Mm-hmm. And it became so crystal clear to me that in order to make it big, you simply have to do more than the average agent does. Yeah. So specific direction. That came from your dad, uh-huh. who wasn't even a real estate trainer. Yeah. You're a military guy, and a guy who's, once there's a structure there that you believe in, you can go execute. Yeah. And so, what happened to your real estate career? Well, it went pretty well, you know. I mean, it took me just a little while to relaunch it, but it it went well. I ended up uh, selling over 200 homes a year, you know, for about seven years. I I had assistants, you know. I had five assistants. My biggest year, I did 292 transactions. And so, my fifth year in the business, after one year, I thought I knew more than I did. I went to Bill, and I said, I want to be a manager. You know, because I know that's where the money is, right? And he goes, okay, you're a manager, and uh, which, <laughs> which should have told me something right there. And so I went from the main Reno office to our Sparks branch office, had about 11 people. My reception to management was they all quit. They all went to Bill and said, if he's the manager, we all quit, because I was younger than all of yeah. them. I had less experience than all of them. And uh, Bill, being a supportive broker, said, well, no, he's the manager. And so they reluctantly came back. And, and I had called my first salesman. You probably heard me say this. I called my first salesman the next day, and they all came in there, you know, kind of defiantly. And I fired all 11 of them and fired a secretary, too. I was wow. on a real roll. You know, yeah. By nine o'clock that morning, I was a branch office. <laughs> so, wow. You know, and then built it up over the next year and a half, and then uh, was still selling. No, and then I went to Bill and I said, "Hey, finally figure out who's making the money. It's the general manager. I want to be the general manager." And so I said, "Okay, you're the general sales manager." And we only had about thirty-five agents, so I was a general manager for a year and a half, and then. Uh, my fifth year, 1981, I said, you know, I finally figured it out. I want to buy you out. And he said, okay. And he sold it to me. He's a pretty agreeable guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I finally figured out who's making the money. Salespeople. That's who's making yeah, the money. So yeah, yeah. so that's the evolution of how I kind of went in the real estate mm-hmm. and management and owned the company. Yeah. And so when did the speaking start? Actually, started right away. started 
1982, when I had owned the company for a year. And my mentor in the business, a guy named Mark Masivic from Las Vegas, Americana Group. Mark was a CRS instructor, and we knew each other from just realtor stuff. And, and I, I, I was teaching some GRI classes, that kind of thing. At the end of my first year, full-time year in real estate, uh, the, the state of Nevada came to me and said, we want you to design a course called Success Factors for New Licensees. And everyone in Nevada has to take your course when they get a real estate license. And so, like, boom, all of a sudden, I'm like a teacher, you know, in my second year of real estate. Mm -hmm. But what I learned is what a lot of people have experienced, and that is you never really know anything until you teach it. Mm, It's true. And it made me better at what I did because I had to teach people what you're supposed to do. So that's what happened. So you're a good teacher. You're you're a very good teacher. I mean, you're a guy who's a great speaker. You got good content. It's real world. Thank you. But when did you learn? Just learn teaching by teaching. You know, I think it was uh, a combination of factors. I think it was when I finished undercover work, I went to the schools, you know, and talked to the kids. And then I went to parents' groups and talked to them. And I went to civic organizations and talked to them. I went to college at night taking speech classes Mm. because I wanted to do a better job in delivering a message I felt pretty strongly about. Mm -hmm. You know, this part of society that most people don't know exists Mm -hmm. in their cities. And so that's really where the speaking started right there. And then in real estate, the thing happened with the success factors and and then some GRI. And then I started teaching CRS courses in 1982. But then I took it upon myself. I went to uh, instructor development workshops that NAR put on. Mm -hmm. You know, flew to Chicago and Bill Lester and some other guy. Went to two-day IDWs and worked really hard to be a better trainer. Yeah, but you obviously enjoyed it. Oh, I loved it because it was growth, and no one was holding me down. No one was deciding whether you can mm-hmm. be an instructor or not. Mm-hmm. You get to those levels because you earned it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the military. It wasn't like police work. For the most part, I was in control of my own rise. And you've spoken all over the world. I mean, how many seminars, how many people would you think you've spoken to? Well, you know, I maybe consciously I've never even tried to add it up. I really don't know. I, You know, I, I think for probably 15 years... Probably did 80, 90 programs a year or something like that, maybe. Today I do two or three, you know. And uh, But, yeah, I've been to quite a few countries around the world. And there's a lot of a lot of perks, as you know, yeah. come with me. So the family's been all over the world with me. And, cool. yeah, yeah, it's been blessed. So what's changed? What's different? Yeah. What's the same? It's probably easier to say what's changed because it's not a lot. Hmm. The ideas haven't changed. Yeah. The tools have changed. Right. My era, we did direct mail. Today, we do e-campaigns. Mm-hmm. You know, my era, I did a seller's activity report every two weeks to my sellers. Today, we send them an email mm-hmm. with the same information. Mm-hmm. And as you well know, what you and Brian, you know, talk about and your whole staff is that uh, all I teach is what I did mm-hmm. and what I see people doing around the country, just like you get to see. And the one thing that hasn't changed from my first day in real estate is that it is still largely a relationship yeah. business. It hasn't changed at all. As a matter of fact, I think, I mean, I've been around long enough that I remember, it wasn't that many years ago, there was open dialogue within our industry that the Internet was going right. was going to wipe out our industry. Right. I find it fascinating to see not only has it not wiped us out, it's secured our position yeah. because there's so much available data to consumers today, they need us to extrapolate yep. that data. That's right. You know, so uh, the relationship is the absolute key. Right. It's like even today, people talk to millennials. Well, the fact of the matter is millennials, they love to research online. They know they can find things out, but then they want someone to help them. Yep. But what they're looking for is integrity, an explanation of what I've read, help me understand it better, 
but they are looking for somebody to serve them. You know, I'm not sure why we get so swept up in this, and, and I'm not anti-technology. I'm fairly tech-savvy, yeah, you're, you're you know, but that. for some reason we don't want to see. NAR, as you know, publishes a report every single year, you know, the profile of the home buyers and sellers. Same. And it, it's the same. And what they look at is a great big bar graph that says 89% of buyers, you know, go on the Internet. Yeah. Well, right next to it is 89% of buyers right. use real estate Right, agents. exactly. <laughs> so never gone away. It's still a big deal. <laughs> it's, just, it's still the way it was. I think in a lot of ways it's made our job easier because mm-hmm. now they don't call and say, uh, hey, this is what I'm looking for in a house. Go find them. Mm-hmm. Now they call and say, hey, I found three houses. Can you get them mm-hmm. shown to me? That's true. That's absolutely yeah. true. Well, yeah. we, we met in 2004, 2003 yeah. through yeah. referral. Someone had worked with you, Paul Thibodeau. That's right, Paul. The great Paul Thibodeau who yeah. events. Yeah. It was very much an instant connection and you and brian hit it off and we had you come out and speak at the seminars and yeah it's been fun listening to you speak and you present and i think anybody who's listened to this ever heard you speak will know just how good you are and how what a great trainer you are and we, we were definitely blessed to have you on the journey with us for as many years as we did that connection was there it was, was the foundation was hey have a bullseye sphere of influence start and qualify it and then basically go and go and interact and build relationships that's never gone out of fashion. I think I think Brian or maybe it was Paulie told me that uh, Paul gave Brian a, a tape. <laughs> a tape. Mm-hmm. We found my... out a way to play it too. I don't think we had <laughs> any way to play it. Like, right. why would we do such a thing? But, what, but here's the story. I was told that you know Brian and Beverly were listening to the tape together, and Beverly said to Brian, "Well, he's you without the accent." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So yeah, philosophically, we was like hand in glove. Yeah, absolutely. And I enjoyed immensely the time we got to work together yeah we just took the coaching route right i mean you were yeah. training them right. doing the seminars we we did the back end part it's a remarkable story and you're still doing your speaking and you're still doing your engagement but you've got other things involved in your life and yeah. i've golfed with you you live in a beautiful place you live in bend oregon but you know you've had a recurring theme in yeah. your story oh, and yeah. uh september 2009 was a very very tough story and uh, i want to ask you because you're wearing a bracelet that says devon's destiny and I'd love if you would share a little bit about Devon and uh, Devon's destiny. I know that's a big part of your life today, and I know it's not an easy part of your story. Yeah, Devon was our, uh, Robin and I, our firstborn son, born in 1986. Uh, and Devon was, uh, was a real free spirit. Devon would have been perfect uh, in the 70s as a hippie in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was quite a young man, and he had just a real passion for the homeless community and loved little kids. And he traveled the world at a very young age. and. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you feed the homeless in Chicago. And and so, uh, yeah, September 13th, 2009, uh, Devin took his own life. Yes. Been suffering with uh, depression since he was about 14 years old. Obviously, he runs in my family. Skip me. Totally mm. skip me. Mm. But got my son. Mm. And so when we lost Dev, Robin and Brandon and I decided we want to do something in his name. And so we took his two passions of children and homeless and we combined them to create Devin's Destiny. Mm-hmm. Been in operation since June uh, of 2010. And we provide a birthday party for every homeless child, a net risk child in Central Oregon. So we haven't really counted them up since April. But as of April, we've been doing them six years. We've done a little over 1,200 birthday parties. Wow, 1,200. 1,200, yeah. yeah. We, we do about 15 a month. And Brandon runs the foundation. Brandon's getting his nursing degree, but he also runs the foundation. And we set up the parties for the child and 12 family members or guests. We pay for the pizza, soft drinks, 
Brandon gets an idea what kind of gift the child wants, and then he goes out and buys the gift. He wraps it and delivers it to the pizza parlor. So when a child shows up with their friends and family, we're nowhere to be found. The table set, decorations are there, gifts are there, and because the last thing Devin would have wanted would be to get credit. Mm-hmm. So we do them all anonymously. We've never seen a birthday party. So a couple of things, because I never met Devin, but I felt like I knew him. Yeah. And I knew him because of all of you. But this was an incredible young guy because he he grew up and you did well. Yeah. And he grew up in a household where he was provided for, but this was a kid who wanted to feel what it felt like not to be provided for. And from what I understand as a young kid, he wanted to feel what it was like to be a homeless kid. He wanted to mm-hmm. experience that. I think there was a story I read of when he was a young kid. I think you were driving somewhere yeah. and uh, yeah. he was about six. Yep. And uh, the boys had earned some money. Right. Yeah, we were, yeah. On, we were on our way yeah. to spend their little 4 or $5 for a toy. And there was a live radio remote going on, and, and it was for kids who couldn't afford toys. And, and Devin said, Dad, said, hey, instead of going to buy a toy, could we just go over there and give them our money? So, yeah. At that age? That yeah, at six years old, yeah. So. An incredibly sensitive, aware young man. And I think incredibly difficult. And it was hard for, you know, I remember that season and how hard it was for you guys. But I've been just so humbled and impressed about how you guys as a family have rallied together and out of your pain has come this purpose how has that helped you guys as just as a family and well you know i'll tell that story occasionally uh, like the last year and a half or so i don't charge speaking fees anymore i uh, ask for a donation mm-hmm. to my foundation because mm-hmm. you can have a great wonderful idea but the real world is unless you have the money to make it happen it's just gonna be a good idea mm-hmm. and so as a result of that i sh- you know there's a video devinsdestiny.org mm-hmm. that was done about four years ago that actually won an emmy award well wow. and uh, that tells the story of devin and why we set this up and when we lost dev uh, i started to say i'm sensitive what i'm about to say here because i've shared that story at a, a number of seminars in the last year or so including just last week in Louisiana where I was, people will come up and say, you know, hey, I've lost yeah. a son or a daughter or a yeah. husband or a spouse. And, and the lady last week said, my daughter's tried to take her own life twice. Mm-hmm. And and so I have those kinds of conversations and, and, and whatever little help we can provide, mm-hmm. we do so after the program. Mm-hmm. I personally get in touch with them, so does my wife, Robin. And But to your, your question, how has this helped us get through it? The single most important thing that I've shared with other people who are in a similar position or afraid they may be in a similar position is this. Two or three days after Devin died and Robin and I were standing in our bedrooms holding each other crying, you know, I said, okay, you know what? Snap my fingers. We could have him back right now today. Right now today we could have him back. What will we do different? Mm. And we couldn't think of anything. Mm. We tried everything. And so honestly, as simple as it might sound for some people, I think that's the question you need to answer. If the worst happens, yeah. can you look in the mirror and say, well, there's nothing I didn't try? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so that's helped us immensely. Yeah. And you're affecting two communities through this. I mean, you're telling your story because of so many people. You know, yeah. it's like one out of three people are going to suffer some sort of level of mental illness in their yeah. life. It's such a hopeless, hard place, but there is hope. But at the same time is all these young kids having a birthday party, which is so phenomenal that you've affected 1,200 kids, that they feel like the king of the world for a day, and without your help, they wouldn't have. And what I thought was extraordinary was that you found, just in Bend, Oregon alone, (laughs) in this small community, this beautiful part of the world, there was like 1,100 1100 kids. Yeah. Yeah. It was an eye-opener for me. I had no idea. Mm. And so, um, yeah. 
it took me a long time to accept this, but I have accepted that uh, the Lord's had his hand on my life. You don't, yeah. you don't go through things and come out the other end without some, some help. Right. It took me a long time to accept that I wasn't the one totally responsible for all these things. Yeah. <laughs> I went through that phase of my life, too. Right. But the reason I'm bringing that up now is that we know we're on the right journey with Devin's destiny because you need to go through the IRS process, get the 501c3, takes months, costs money, you know, all that sort of thing. And we, he lost him in September of Well, by June of 2010, about, you know, it took about seven, eight months, and we did it. We're all ready to go. And so we went to the loft, which is a homeless shelter for children just emancipated kids and been and we went there and sat down with the director and said we got this idea about doing birthday parties for homeless kids you got all homeless kids here by chance to have somebody you know with a birthday coming up and so he got up went in the room came back says yeah we have a girl that has a birthday coming up a couple of weeks we, and robin and brandon and i were sitting there and he said yeah her birthday uh is on june 18th and robin and brandon and i looked at each other that was Devin's birthday uh, hmm. that's some destiny yeah yeah that told us right there you know, I don't know if we need a confirmation, but we got it. So when you guys as a family have seen these or you experience this or you talk about it, how does it feel? How does it feel when you know you're helping make a difference? Well, it certainly has dulled the pain. Mm-hmm. doesn't do away with it. Sure. You know, and for those people who have been through anything similar, something in life, uh, my message is this. You, you never get over it. You learn to live with it. Mm. And I think that's important. Yeah. You have to learn to live with it. And so it doesn't mean that you're not honoring that person, you know. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're yeah. turning your attention yeah. somewhere else. But we know we're doing what Devin would want us yeah. to do. We know Devin's very proud of what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And Brian Buffini, as you know, when we launched this, mm-hmm. and I was sitting backstage with Brian and told him about this idea, um, you know, we budgeted $75 for a birthday party, and Brian right there that day behind the stage said, okay, I went this many birthday parties and wrote a check. <laughs> he launched our foundation. Yeah. You guys That's did. so cool. Well, we're proud to be associated with it, and it's it's a phenomenal story. And it's great to see. And I think you have honored. You've honored your son, and you've honored so many people. And I want to, as many people to know about this as possible, because it's a tired story and a tough story, but it's also a glorious story in a lot of ways. You've had a big life. We could talk for days here. We, you know, I said lunch today, and maybe we'll get a, another time to dive into some stories. You have some remarkable stories along the way. I have a few questions I want to end on. Okay. If you're okay with that, they're quick-fire questions that we ask at every one of our shows. I'll do it. And so let's dive in here. Here's my first question for you is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Just do the right thing. Mm. Because if you follow that principle, almost everything else is secondary. Mm. Just do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a business, personal life, family, you know, spouses, relationships, Mm -hmm. do the right thing. I like that. I can remember that. In fact, that's my favorite piece of advice I've ever gotten, and I just realized maybe it was you who gave it to me. (laughs) What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? It'd be nice if I were, by nature, more organized, because I'm very disorganized by nature, Mm -hmm. and I've learned to live with that Mm -hmm. and to make adjustments as a result, but I'm... Yeah, I wish I was more organized. It <laughs> would have made life a little simpler. Yeah, well, you got structure. You had, yeah. you had some structures in a lot yeah. of your career. Yeah. What book has been most influential in your life? Uh, it came out in the early 80s. Uh, Tom Peters and Nancy Austin, A Passion for Excellence. Hmm. It had more impact on me um, than any book I've ever read in the business world. Hmm. What is your favorite song? Happy Birthday. Happy Birthday. And beside Beyond the Law, what movie do you watch over and over again? I don't. 
I've never been a person who can watch a movie more than maybe once, twice would be the absolute most. No, I, I, I watch lots of different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Any one movie inspire you more than other that you remember going, that was a great movie? You know, I think you'll remember the title, I'm sure, the one that just came out about Sam Peasy uh, last year. Olympic athlete oh, yeah. shut down. And yeah, unbroken. Br- unbroken. Well, that's kind of interesting that that would be one of your favorite movies yeah. because I think that describes you and your spirit and your story. Yeah. yeah. That was a remarkable story. It was very remarkable. But yeah. uh, it Trem- reminds me of you. Kindred Trem- spirit. Tremendous inner strength and com- ability to compartmentalize. <laughs> <laughs> and tremendous faith. Yeah, absolutely. Rick, I can't thank you enough. You're an amazing man. It's a blessing to know you. Thank you for opening up all the doors to your compartments today and then let's look in your life you have a a truly amazing story but you are one of the best people I know and if I had to make a phone call to somebody to ask for a piece of advice you're right there on the short list for me and I can't thank you enough for that and I also know that people listening on this today are going to learn so much and uh, I think it's going to make a big difference so thanks so much my friend you're, You're a great man. Thank God you bless you. Well, thanks for the opportunity to share. I, I enjoy our relationship. I have for years I admire what you and Buffini Company are doing for many, many people. Thanks, Rick. You're thanks welcome. a million. We'll do this again. Okay. God bless. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, I think you'd understand why I said he's one of the most interesting men I've ever met. What a story. And I think what an encouragement to all of us to keep going, no matter what the circumstances are, and that there's always hope. Now, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. We're also on Android. So download your favorite app from Google Play and tune in for free. We love hearing the feedback and the reviews help to let us know the kind of stuff you're enjoying. Our goal is to positively influence as many folks as we can. So please share it with others. As I finish today, I'll leave you with an Irish blessing our grandfather always said. May the roads rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand.